Section 42 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 42, Appendix 3, Part 1. The party among us, who have distinguished themselves by adhering to liberty and popular government, have long indulged their prejudices against the succeeding race of princes, and by bestowing unbounded panegyrics on the virtue and wisdom of Elizabeth. They have been so extremely ignorant of the transactions of this reign, as to extol her for a quality which of all others she was least possessed of a tender regard for the constitution and a concern for the liberties and privileges of her people but as it is scarcely possible for the prepossessions of party to throw a veil much longer over facts so palpable and undeniable there is a danger lest the public should run into the opposite extreme and should entertain an aversion to the memory of a princess who exercised the royal authority in a manner so contrary to all the ideas which we at present entertain of a legal constitution but elizabeth only supported the prerogatives transmitted to her by her predecessors she believed that her subjects were entitled to no more liberty than their ancestors had enjoyed she found that they entirely acquiesced in her arbitrary administration and it was not natural for her to find fault with a form of government by which she herself was invested with such unlimited authority in the particular exertions of power the question ought never to be forgotten what is best but in the general distribution of power among the several members of a constitution there can seldom be admitted any other question than what is established few examples occur of princes who have willingly resigned their power none of those who have without a struggle and reluctance allowed it to be extorted from them if any other rule than established practice be followed factions and dissensions must multiply without end and though many constitutions and none more than the british have been improved even by violent innovations the praise bestowed on those patriots to whom the nation has been indebted for its privileges ought to be given with some reserve and surely without the least rancor against those who adhered to the ancient constitution in order to understand the ancient constitution of england there is not a period which deserves more to be studied than the reign of elizabeth the prerogatives of this princess were scarcely ever disputed and she therefore employed them without scruple her imperious temper a circumstance in which she went far beyond her successors rendered her exertions of power violent and frequent and discovered the full extent of her authority the great popularity which she enjoyed proves that she did not infringe any established liberties of the people there remains evidence sufficient to ascertain 
the most noted acts of her administration and though that evidence must be drawn from a source wide of the ordinary historians it becomes only more authentic on that account and serves as a stronger proof that her particular exertions of power were conceived to be nothing but the ordinary course of administration since they were not thought remarkable enough to be recorded even by contemporary writers if there was any difference in this particular the people in former reigns seem rather to have been more submissive than even during the age of elizabeth it may not be improper to recount some of the ancient prerogatives of the crown and lay open the sources of that great power which the english monarchs formerly enjoyed one of the most ancient and most established instruments of power was the court of star chamber which possessed an unlimited discretionary authority of fining imprisoning and inflicting corporal punishment and whose jurisdiction extended to all sorts of offences contempts and disorders that lay not within reach of the common law the members of this court consisted of the privy council and the judges men who all of them enjoyed their offices during pleasure and when the prince himself was present he was the sole judge and all others could only interpose with their advice there needed but this one court in any government to put an end to all regular legal and exact plans of liberty for who durst set himself in opposition to the crown and ministry or aspire to the character of being a patron of freedom while exposed to so arbitrary a jurisdiction i much question whether any of the absolute monarchies in europe contain at present so illegal and despotic a tribunal the court of high commission was another jurisdiction still more terrible both because the crime of heresy of which it took cognizance was more undefinable than any civil offence and because its method of inquisition and of administering oaths were more contrary to all the most simple ideas of justice and equity the fines and imprisonments imposed by this court were frequent the deprivations and suspensions of the clergy for nonconformity were also numerous and comprehended at one time the third of all the ecclesiastics of england the queen in a letter to the archbishop of canterbury said expressly that she was resolved that no man should be suffered to decline either on the left or on the right hand from the drawn line limited by authority and by her law and injunctions but martial law went beyond even these two courts in a prompt and arbitrary and violent method of decision whenever there was an insurrection of public disorder the crown employed martial law and it was during that time exercised not only over the soldiers but over the whole people any one might be punished as a rebel or an aider and a better of rebellion whom the provost-marshal or lieutenant of a county or their deputies pleased to suspect lord bacon says that the trial at common law granted to the lord of essex and his fellow-conspirators was a favour for that the case would have borne and required the severity of martial law we have seen instances of it being employed by queen mary in defence of orthodoxy 
there remains a letter of queen elizabeth to the earl of sussex after the suppression of the northern rebellion in which she sharply reproves him because she had not heard of his having executed any criminals by martial law though it is probable that near eight hundred persons suffered one way or another on account of that slight insurrection but the kings of england did not always limit the exercise of this law to times of civil war and disorder in fifteen fifty two when there was no rebellion or insurrection king edward granted a commission of martial law and empowered the commissioners to execute it as should be thought by their discretion most necessary queen elizabeth too was not sparing in the use of this law in fifteen seventy three one peter burchett a puritan being persuaded that it was meritorious to kill such as opposed the truth of the gospel ran into the streets and wounded hawkins the famous sea captain whom he took for hatton the queen's favorite the queen was so incensed that she ordered him to be punished instantly by martial law but upon the remonstrance of some prudent counsellors who told her that this law was usually confined to turbulent times she recalled her order and delivered over burchett to the common law but she continued not always so reserved in executing this authority there remains a proclamation of hers in which she orders martial law to be used against all such as import bulls or even forbidden books and pamphlets from abroad and prohibits the questioning of their lieutenants or their deputies for their arbitrary punishment of such offenders any law or statute to the contrary in any wise notwithstanding we have another act of hers still more extraordinary the streets of london were much infested with idle vagabonds and riotous persons the lord mayor had endeavoured to repress this disorder the star chamber had exerted its authority and inflicted punishment on these rioters but the queen finding those remedies ineffectual revived martial law and gave sir thomas wilford a commission of provost-marshal granting him authority and commanding him upon signification given by the justices of peace in london or the neighbouring counties of such offenders worthy to be speedily executed by martial law to attach and take the same persons and in the presence of the said justices according to justice of martial law to execute them upon the gallows or gibbet openly or near to such place where the said rebellious and incorrigible offenders shall be found to have committed the said great offences i suppose it would be difficult to produce an instance of such an act of authority in any place nearer than muscovy the patent of high constable granted to earl rivers by edward the fourth proves the nature of the office the powers are unlimited perpetual and remain in force during peace as well as during war and rebellion the parliament in edward the sixth reign acknowledged the jurisdiction of the constable and marshal's court to be part of the laws of the land the star chamber and high commission and court-martial though arbitrary jurisdictions had still some pretence of a trial at least of a sentence but there was a grievous punishment very generally inflicted in that age without any other authority than the warrant of a secretary of state 
or of the privy council and that was imprisonment in any jail and during any time that the ministers should think proper in suspicious times all the jails were full of prisoners of state and those unhappy victims of public jealousy were sometimes thrown into dungeons loaded with irons and treated in the most cruel manner without their being able to obtain any remedy from the law this practice was an indirect way of employing torture but the rack itself though not admitted in the ordinary execution of justice was frequently used upon any suspicion by authority of a warrant from a secretary or the privy council even the council in the marches of wales were empowered by their very commission to make use of torture whenever they thought proper there cannot be a stronger proof of how lightly the rack was employed than the following story told by lord bacon we shall give it in his own words the queen was mightily incensed against hayward on account of a book he dedicated to lord essex being a story of the first year of henry the fourth thinking it a seditious prelude to put into the people's heads boldness and faction she said that she had an opinion that there was treason in it and asked me if i could not find any places in it that might be drawn within the case of treason whereto i answered for treason sure i found none but for felony very many and when her majesty hastily asked me wherein i told her the author had committed very apparent theft for he had taken most of the sentences of cornelius tacitus and translated them into english and put them into his text and another time when the queen could not be persuaded that it was his writing whose name was on it but that it had some more mischievous author and said with a great indignation that she would have him racked to produce his author i replied nay madam he is a doctor never rack his person but rack his style let him have pen ink paper and help of books and be enjoined to continue the story where it breaketh off and i will undertake by collating the styles to judge whether he were the author or no thus had it not been for bacon's humanity or rather his wit this author a man of letters had been put to the rack for a most innocent performance his real offence was his dedicating a book to that munificent patron of the learned the earl of essex at a time when this nobleman lay under her majesty's displeasure the queen's menace of trying and punishing hayward for treason could easily have been executed let his book have been ever so innocent while so many terrors hung over the people no jury durst have acquitted a man when the court was resolved to have him condemned the practice also of not confronting witnesses with the prisoner gave the crown lawyers all imaginable advantage against him and indeed there scarcely occurs any instance during all these reigns that a sovereign or the ministers were ever disappointed in the issue of a prosecution timid juries and judges who held their offices during pleasure never failed to second all the views of the crown the power of pressing both for sea and land service and obliging any person to accept of any office however mean or unfit for him was another prerogative totally incompatible with freedom osborne 
giving the following account of Elizabeth's method of employing this prerogative, in case she found any likely to interrupt her occasions, says he, she did seasonably prevent him by a chargeable employment abroad or putting him upon some service at home which she knew least grateful to the people contrary to a false maximum since practised with far worse success by such princes as thought it better husbandry to buy off enemies than reward friends the practice with which osborne reproaches the two immediate successors of elizabeth proceed partly from the extreme difficulty of their situation partly from the greater lenity of their disposition. The power of pressing, as may naturally be imagined, was often abused, in other respects, by men of inferior rank, and officers often exacted money for freeing persons from the service. The government of England, during that age, however, different in other particulars, bore in this respect some resemblance to that of Turkey at present, the sovereign possessed every power except that of imposing taxes, and in both countries this limitation, unsupported by other privileges, appears rather prejudicial to the people. In Turkey, it obliges the sultan to permit the extortion of the pashas and governors of provinces, from whom he afterwards squeezes presents or takes forfeitures. In England, it engaged the queen to erect monopolies and grant patents for exclusive trade, an invention so pernicious that, had she gone on during a tract of years at her own rate, England, the seat of riches and arts and commerce, would have contained at present as little industry as Morocco or the coast of Barbary. We may further observe that this valuable privilege, valuable only because it proved afterwards the means by which the Parliament extorted all their other privileges, was very much encroached on in an indirect manner during the reign of Elizabeth, as well as of her predecessors. She often exacted loans from her people, an arbitrary and unequal kind of imposition, and which individuals felt severely, for though the money had been regularly repaid, which was seldom the case, it lay in the prince's hands without interest, which was a sensible loss to the persons from whom the money was borrowed. There remains a proposal made by Lord Burley for levying a general loan on the people, equivalent to a subsidy, a scheme which would have laid the burden more equally, but which was, in different words, a taxation imposed without consent of Parliament. It is remarkable that the scheme thus proposed, without any visible necessity by that wise minister, is the very same which, Henry the Eighth executed, and which Charles I, enraged by ill usage from his Parliament and reduced to the greatest difficulties, put afterwards in practice to the great discontent of the nation. The demand of benevolence was another invention of that age for taxing the people. This practice was so little conceived to be irregular that the Commons in 1585 offered the Queen a benevolence, which she very generously refused, as having no occasion at that time for money. Queen Mary, also by order of council, increased the customs in some branches, and her sister imitated the example. There was a species of ship money imposed at the time of the Spanish invasion. The several ports were required to equip a certain number of vessels at their own charge, 
and such was the alacrity of the people for the public defence that some of the ports particularly london sent double the number demanded of them when any levies were made for ireland france or the low countries the queen obliged the counties to levy the soldiers to arm and clothe them and carry them to the seaports at their own charge new year's gifts were at that time expected from the nobility and from the more considerable gentry purveyance and preemption were also methods of taxation unequal arbitrary and oppressive the whole kingdom sensibly felt the burden of these impositions and it was regarded as a great privilege conferred on oxford and cambridge to prohibit the purveyors from taking any commodities within five miles of these universities the queen victualled her navy by means of this prerogative during the first years of her reign wardship was the most regular and legal of all these impositions by prerogative and yet was it a great badge of slavery and oppressive to all the considerable families when an estate devolved to a female the sovereign obliged her to marry any one he pleased whether the heir were male or female the crown enjoyed the whole profit of the estate during the minority the giving of a rich wardship was a usual method of rewarding a courtier or favorite the inventions were endless which arbitrary power might employ for the extorting of money while the people imagined that their property was secured by the crown's being debarred from imposing taxes strype has preserved a speech of lord burley to the queen and council in which are contained some particulars not a little extraordinary burley proposes that she should erect a court for the correction of all abuses and should confer on the commissioners a general inquisitorial power over the whole kingdom he sets before her the example of her wise grandfather henry the seventh who by such methods extremely augmented his revenue and he recommends that this new court should proceed as well by the direction and ordinary course of the laws as by virtue of her majesty's supreme regiment and absolute power from whence law proceeded in a word he expects from this institution greater accession to the royal treasure than henry the eighth derived from the abolition of the abbeys and all the forfeitures of ecclesiastical revenues this project of lord burleigh's needs not i think any comment a form of government must be very arbitrary indeed where a wise and good minister could make such a proposal to the sovereign embargoes on merchandise was another engine of royal power by which the english princes were able to extort money from the people we have seen instances in the reign of mary elizabeth before her coronation issued an order to the customs house prohibiting the sale of all crimson silk which should be imported till the court were first supplied she expected no doubt a good pennyworth from the merchants while they lay under her restraint the parliament pretended to the right of enacting laws as well as of granting subsidies but this privilege was during that age still more insignificant than the other queen elizabeth expressly prohibited them from meddling either with state matters or ecclesiastical causes and she openly sent the members to prison who dared 
to transgress her imperial edict in these particulars there passed few sessions of parliament during her reign where there occur not instances of this arbitrary conduct end of section forty two appendix three part one recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington